0: Amen. Amen. Good morning. So, if you uh, got one of the bulletins on the way in, you saw the theme, and uh, some of you are excited because you think everyone else has an anger problem but you, and uh, some of you are excited because you're like, all right, uh, give it to me. I need to hear it. This is for me. So, my first question for you, how do you respond to difficulty, to frustration, to disappointment? How short is your fuse? Now, as soon as I say that phrase, you know exactly what I mean. I don't have to explain that to you because every one of us has this stick of dynamite within us. Some of us have a very small stick with a very long wick, hopefully. Maybe there's a big stick of dynamite with a very long wick. Hopefully it's not a big stick of dynamite with a short wick. But the question is, what lights that fuse? And will you put it out or will you watch it burn getting ready for what comes next? So yours might be the slow driver the fast driver, ruined dinner, the frustrating spouse, the frustrating child, whatever it is, something begins to stir that up with you. For me, it is frustration. My frustration turns to anger because if I can't do something, if I can't find something like a lost wallet or a lost phone, um, it just begins to build up and then I got to leave or I don't get pretty. Um, And... Thankfully, my wife reminds me all the time that I'm a Christian and that I should not respond the way I do over stupid little things. But, every one of us can identify with that because every one of us has our little pressure points. And this, this imagery of fire and spark and fuel and ignite, fanning of flame and fuming and, and raging, they could all describe a building on fire or a person in anger. And the Bible uses this imagery often. Because fire, like our anger, is spontaneous, it's unpredictable, and it's uncontrollable. But unlike our anger, it is a lot easier, or excuse me, unlike fire, it is a lot easier to get our anger going than it is a fire. If you've ever tried tried to start a fire without a lot of gasoline, it doesn't always work out. But our anger can be kindled pretty quickly. And so Proverbs has a lot to say about this. We're going to get into these verses this morning. But so does Jesus. I want to set the bar very high before we get into Proverbs. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You may be familiar with this. Because when people try to set the standard of what it means to be a good person. And when they think of themselves, well, of course, I've never murdered anyone. I've never done all of these things. And so Jesus puts us right in our place as he often does when he says you've heard it said that of those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment amen everyone's nodding in agreement right here but here's where he brings it home and pierces our hearts but i say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment whoever insults his brother Will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, implied here to your brother, will be liable to the hell of fire. Notice the connection here between the fire that is in our chest when we are angry and the fire that it leads to. So, this is easy to understand. This is not gonna be a difficult sermon. Nothing here is going to stretch you. Maybe as we get to the end, we talk about the anger of God, but nothing in Proverbs is really going to stretch you. But this is so difficult to get under control. Because as we go through this and we look at these Proverbs, think, how many times does my anger control me? How many times am I so consumed by my urges or my emotions That I am out of control versus how often Scripture speaks about being in control and having self-control and being sober-minded. We can often become drunk in our emotions. So first, we're going to look at unrighteous anger in Proverbs, and then in the second half of the sermon, uh, we're going to look at righteous anger in God, in Christ, and then in us. Um, So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you that you are all perfections. You lack nothing. You are not short on love and you are not short on anger. You are not tossed to and fro like we are. You are not reacting to circumstances. You are unchangeable, you are unfading. Your glory shines from eternity to eternity. Everything you do is right and true. Everything you do is perfectly controlled and calculated by your sovereign plan and your providential hand. How different are we? In every respect. We're finite, mutable given into urges, being controlled by everything that is within us, Lord, that's why we so desperately need you. Thank you for what you have done in your people, and that if we are indeed in Christ, we've been brought to death, to life, but we're also given your spirit who helps apply what we'll look at this morning convicts us of our sin, corrects us. You've called us to be part of your church, your body, a sanctified temple of worship of the holy triune God. May we be a pleasing people and give pleasing offerings in our thoughts, in our affections, in our speech, and in our actions to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So most of these Proverbs are fairly self-explanatory. We're going to move through quickly. Uh, They are simple, yet convicting. So you will need a Bible. Uh, If you are here for the first time, we are glad you're here. This is a church where you will need a Bible. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you. There's some on the table in the back uh, because the cross references will be on the screen, but all the Proverbs will be in your Bible. Um, And use a paper one. Uh, If you insist on using your phone, put it in airplane mode, uh, because it is so, or shut off everything else. But, all right, enough of that. So if you uh, are here for the first time, we're in Proverbs, and we're going through the major themes of Proverbs. We've been here for some time. Uh, We've got a couple weeks left, but we can't go on without dealing with anger, because Proverbs deals with it so much. So I'm just scratching the surface. There are many more additional Proverbs, and there are more that I didn't even include there. So let's begin in chapter 14, verse 29. Uh, This is kind of what we see often in Proverbs. There are lessons taught by comparison and lessons taught by contrast. This one is one of contrast. Verse 29 of chapter 14, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Here's one side. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Here it is. If you control your anger, you are wise and you'll be godly in conduct. But the one with no temperance is foolish. How? How is that so? The one who is slow to anger, his judgment is not clouded. He thinks through things, does not respond to emotions, does not become a slave to his desires. But the one who is hasty, the one who has a temper, that drunkenness that I talked about earlier, you can't have sound judgment when you are driven by your emotions, when your eyes are so red with anger and frustration that that's all you see, you become a fool. This is a concept that is consistent in the Old and New Testament. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.9 shows us where the root of this is. Uh, This is Solomon as well, looking at the The root of anger. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. This is Ecclesiastes 7, 9. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Anger finds a home in the fool. It lodges itself there. It checks in. It gets comfortable. It doesn't leave. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. To be able to control, to be slow to anger requires maturity. This is what James gets at in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be, these are commands, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. How much self-control does it take to be slow to anger, to be slow to speak, to be quick to listen? This is a person whose emotions, whose speech, everything, is aligned with godliness, as he goes on to say, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Remember that phrase, the anger of man. This will be contrasted with the anger of God. We can't understand anger apart from sin. We have no category for it. But we must not put God into that category. All right, let's go on. Chapter 15, verse 18. Chapter 15, verse 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. This is the first of many of this heat and anger picture. These two are closely associated with each other. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. A lot of times we don't realize the power of our words. We can be the spark that starts the fire or the fuel that keeps it raging. Or we can be the peacemakers who put the fire out. We are to be fire extinguishers, not flamethrowers. This may sound obvious, but every one of us has found us in that situation or been in the situation when someone has thrown fire on an already raging or fuel on our already raging fire. But for us, we don't realize in the moment when we're so overcome by emotion that we only think about ourselves and don't realize the implications of of what's going on. Here is the danger with this sinful anger. It becomes all-consuming. This fire within us becomes a fire without. Unless we can step outside of ourselves, unless we can step back and calm and control ourselves. We're going to do harm to ourselves and others. All right, let's keep moving. Chapter 16, verse 32. Verse 32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. This is self-explanatory. I don't need to go into this, but it's worth pondering the value of self-control. Better than the mighty And better than he who conquers a city is he who can conquer his own anger. Chapter 17, verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out of water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Great advice. Letting out of water. What does this mean here? Anyone ever emptied like a little kiddie pool, bent the side down and the water started flowing out? You ever try to stop the water once it's flowing out? Anyone ever seen a stream that's been, that's been, that's been blocked and, and rocks are put in place and you move the rocks out of the way and then try to put the water back? Ever seen a dam opened and try to, to hold it back? This is what happens when you let the little bit of strife out. The water begins to flow and there is no turning back. This picture of strife, it just takes a little bit. Once you open it up, you open a crack in the door and water begins to flow and that's it. So don't let the dam break. If you see a crack, walk away. This is the counsel here. Walk away before it goes, before it gets out of control. All of us have been there. We've been in those situations where we know I can go one step further this way and I'm going to completely lose control or I can walk away. And we're like, I think I can handle it. I'm gonna take that step. And how often does that turn out well? Don't let the water break through. So from great advice to great wisdom in chapter 19, verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense here. This is what this is what makes one slow to anger. This is what's required. Even more, this is virtuous. This word for, for glory here could also be translated beautiful. Picture the uh, what what Paul talks about in the New Testament, the, the, the woman, her hair being her glory. The one who overlooks an offense, it is beautiful. It is commendable, it is what should be admired. but it's not easy to overlook an offense. Man, it's hard. Man, it's hard to take an insult, to take something that you know should not happen to you and overlook it. But that is glorious. Chapter 20, verse three is very similar. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife or away from. But every fool will be glorious. Very similar this glory and honor picture. Avoiding unnecessary conflict it is foolish. Avoid the person who likes to argue. Don't be the person who likes to argue. Benjamin Franklin's famous for saying whatever is begun in anger will end in shame. True words from a pagan. Uh, Same chapter, 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Another one. This is so much easier said than it is done. As Christians, we understand this. But do we believe this? Do we practice this? If we do, if we wait on the Lord, if we know he will deliver, if we know vengeance is his, how freeing is that? How freeing is it that you don't have to stand in the place of God? How freeing is it that the consequences of everyone else's actions don't rest on your shoulders? How freeing is it that the God who is perfect and will never make mistakes, he will respond as needed. That should be freeing. It should be an encouragement that every evil that has ever been done will be put into his hands. And either one on the back of his son or remains on the back of him who committed it. And no evil will go unpunished, not one. But we're the opposite. We're impatient. And a lot of times it, it stems from a desire to see justice done. And we want to see every right, uh, every wrong righted. And we think we're the ones to do it. And because we're so self-consumed, we want to do it right now. I'm the one to do it. And I want the satisfaction of seeing these people get their justice right now. But our God is not impatient. Praise God, he is long-suffering. And we'll get into that more later. And we need to take comfort that vengeance is his. This is what Paul says in Romans 12. Romans 12, beginning in verse 19. This is in the context of Christian character and Christian practice. What should... What should the church look like? What should the lives of the saints look like? He's got a long list here. But notice what he says in verse 19. Beloved. Any time the inspired writers begin with beloved, it should remind us, I love you. You are cherished by me and you are cherished by Christ and your heavenly father. Remember that. If you are beloved, By the holy and true God. Never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do we believe that? And what does it say about him when we take vengeance into our own hands? To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. He is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. If we were more concerned with being a witness for Christ than being right or getting even, this would not be so hard for us. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To be controlled by anger is to be overcome with evil. This raging, sinful fire within us can easily overcome us, and we lose all sense, and we lose all witness. Or we can say, my sovereign God will avenge. He has the final say. I rest in him. All right, let's move on. Proverbs 22, verse 10. Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. If it is within your power, in your home, in your friend circle, in the church, have no patience for, do not continue with quarreling people. If they are members of your household, that is heartbreaking. Proverbs has much to say about that, too. Uh, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But some people are ferro rods, and we know what a ferro rod is. You ever been camping, you ever tried to start a fire, it's a little magnesium stick that a little spark. It will suppose, hopefully rain or shine, start a fire. Some people are like that, The little bit of friction, a little bit, and they are ready to start a blaze. And if you have those kind of people, you don't want them around feeble and dry tender. Look around the room. You're looking at feeble and dry tinder. This analogy continues as you think about a forest. A forest that is well watered, that is, that is fed well, that gets plenty of, of rain. How susceptible is it to fire? Just like a church. A church that is well watered, with deep roots, that has a good rain source, it's not susceptible to many fires, but the dry forest that has a lot of underbrush. This person who stirs up strife, who stirs up quarreling, it's like the person walking through a dry forest flicking cigarette butts, thinks nothing will ever happen, and thinks nothing of the rage that is created behind them. How many times have we seen this play out? How many times have we seen this person, this scoffer? And how many times have we, or they, or others, responded in personal pettiness? And this personal pettiness turns to anger. And this, per- and this anger turns to accusation. And this accusation turns to division. And without humility, someone or both are eventually hurt. Bridges are burned, friendships are ruined, someone leaves. This happens in the church every day. I have seen this. Most of you have seen this. You know how heartbreaking it is when the scoffer, the one who is, who is always complaining, who is always criticizing, who is always undermining, begins to take hold. And if you don't drive them out, that fire will spread. And that hurt will continue and it will last for years. This is why Paul writes to the church when he, in Crete, as he's writing to Titus, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. One of the best lessons I have learned in ministry is do not let division and accusation and pettiness go because it will spread. Paul says to Titus, As for a person, this is uh, chapter 3, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. To some of you, that might sound harsh. But think about your own home. If someone comes into your home as a guest and starts fights with your children or your wife or your husband, how many times are you going to warn them? What will you do if it keeps up? You better protect your home. You better have nothing more to do with them because that person, if that person cares more about being right and their quarrels, they are of no use to you. There is a saying among pastors. It is called addition by subtraction. That is what Paul is talking about here because that person, such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. If two warnings won't, won't work, shake the dust off your sandals and let them go. All right, let's move on. Chapter 22, verse 24. This one's self-explanatory. No need to go into this, but there's a great tie-in with last week. I almost covered this last week, so there's a lot of overlap between our themes. Last week, we dealt with friends and counselors. Chapter 22, verse 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Who you walk with will rub off on you. You will begin to be like them. You hang around with angry people, uncontrolled people, you will become like them. Don't walk with them. Make no friendship with them. Don't do it. Let's move on. Chapter 25, verse 28. A man without self-control. I love all of the pages turning. I can hear angels celebrating us. <laughs> <one. laughs> Chapter 25, verse 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into, left without walls. Man, that's good. So think about that for a minute. Uh, this in the Hebrew uh, is restraint of spirit. So without self-control, restrain, uh, 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 restraint of spirit. This applies to anger as well as the rest of our emotions. When we become under the control of our anger and our urges because of felt enemies, let me make a distinction here. There are real enemies, and then there are enemies that you feel. Don't know the difference? Oftentimes, what hurts you and your feelings becomes what you are consumed with. Those are felt enemies. I think that she doesn't like me because she didn't respond the way I wanted to. Or this person is coming after me or this is threatening my identity or whatever it is. Those are felt enemies. And if you lack self-control, you will try to defend yourself against felt enemies and you will leave yourself completely vulnerable to real enemies. A man without self-control is like a city broken into left without walls. If you're going to lack self-control in your emotions and be driven by them, you might as well open up all your doors and show everyone passing by all the valuable things in your house. This is what the writer is saying here. Because if we're given into our urges, we have no self-control. We are defenseless against real enemies. I like what the the King James says here, that a man who has no rule over his spirit. He has no control over what's going on inside him. He is being ruled by his emotions and he is helpless and he's just along for the ride. So for us, who rules? Our passions or Christ? What we feel or what we know to be true. Here's what Paul says in Romans 6. Romans 6. The contrast of Romans 6. This right here is the great hinge portion. The first half of Romans 6. You have been baptized into Christ. You have died with him. You have risen to new life in him. You are his. He died to sin. You died to sin. You are in Christ. Now, and then there's this hinge portion. And then right after... He talks about being slaves to righteousness and not slaves to sin. But how does he connect the two? You've been baptized, you are in Christ, this is your new identity, let not sin therefore. The therefore tells us, remember everything I just said. He died to sin so that you would sin no longer. He died so that you would no longer be dominated by your passions. That's why Paul says, let not sin therefore reign or rule in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, meaning no part of you. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Praise God for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. That we know who rules. We know who has all authority. We know who has the final say. But how often do we put our emotions on the throne? And we bow down to them and do whatever they beckon us to do. Paul says, remember your baptism. Look forward. You will become slaves to righteousness. You are servants of everything that is good. Don't go back and become slaves of sin. All right, chapter 26 in Proverbs. Uh, this is going to be rapid fire, a section of description, descriptive illustrations so Proverbs chapter 26 is a thematic chapter. Uh, we've, covered, we've covered several of these, uh, most of this chapter, actually. So it begins with the fool. Then it goes on to the lazy. Our section will be the instigators. And then it goes on to the deceivers afterwards. So uh, there, it's broken up into those four sections in chapter 26 of Proverbs. But I want you just to see the pattern here and see the, the imagery. I won't give a lot of comment here, but watch the flow of this. Verse 17, Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. What a great picture. One who meddles in a quarrel not his own is one, like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. How well do you think that's going to go if a dog's running by and you grab him by the ears? He's not going to be happy and you're definitely not going to be happy. That's how silly it is. But how often can we not contain ourselves? Oh, oh man, I could... I could really set this this thing right. Inserting myself into someone else's issue, you might as well grab a stray dog by the ears. Don't do it. 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, so this is wood on fire. Arrows and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Man. Deceiving a friend for the sake of laughs you might as well just carelessly throw arrows and flaming logs of wood around. You're just asking for trouble. I was only joking. Here's the fire analogy, which is going to continue in the next two verses. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, verse 20. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. The whisperer, the gossip, they are the wood for the fire. If you close your mouth and stop whispering and stop gossiping, nothing will feed the fire. Stop throwing wood on it. Basically what he's saying here, there's no fuel for the fighting. Verse 21, this is self-explanatory, but the comparison continues, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife When you get angry you get frustrated you get disappointed think about that fire inside what do you do with it do you listen to those who will fuel it put wood on the fire do you get involved and brought into other people's anger Or do you remember your baptism? Do you remember whose you are? We'll get into more of the practical in just a moment. Uh, Last final group here in chapter 28 or 29, beginning in verse 8, and then we'll uh, get to the second half. Chapter 29, verse 8. Here's this theme again. Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. Scoffers start fires. Wise, we should extinguish them. How do you do that with self-control? You don't be given over to your urges. Scoffers, we saw them earlier. Nothing good comes from the mocker, the criticizer, the complainer. Verse nine: If a wise man has an arrangement with a fool, an argument, excuse me, with a fool. The fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Man, that is true. Sounds like the Joker. Like everything's funny, and you're just the the, the more frustrated and in pain you are, the happier they get. Hate those people. (laughs) But how often have we wasted our time arguing with someone like that? They just love to argue. The more you, you, you lean in, the happier they get because they get to reel you into their world. And this is fun for them. Hopefully that's not you. Why are you arguing with those people? Don't be that person either. Wisdom slaps some sense into it and says, cut and run. This person is a fool. This is a waste of my time. Many of us would save ourselves a lot of aggravation and stress if we cut and run a lot faster. Finally, our final proverb, verse 11. I have a good sum up here. A fool gives full vent to his spirit. If you ever used a wood stove or a grill, what happens when you open the vent all the way? Whoosh, yeah. Oxygen fuels the fire and it rages. This is a fool open all the vents, open all the windows, blow more air on this thing, let the fire spread. That's a fool. But a wise man quietly holds back. Restraint. It is wise, it is godly, it is not always easy. So we spend a good amount of time on unrighteous anger. Uncontrolled anger. But is anger ever righteous? Is it ever, can we ever control it? Who could possibly control it? And is it ever justified? So we are going to transition to that type of anger, but we must start with something that's going to confuse or maybe frustrate some of you. Anger is not sin. Anger is not sin. You may be scratching your head. You may be wondering what I mean by that. Sin makes anger sinful. First thing we need to understand is that anger is an attribute of God. God himself is known by and marked by anger. But God is all perfections. God's anger is perfectly consistent with God's love and his patience and his mercy. The Reformed Confessions speak of him being without body, without parts, or without passions. This is the passions portion. We have no category for being angry apart from sin. We have no category for not being driven by our passions. When the wind blows of our frustrations and our anger, we go with it. We're like a sail to our emotions. But he is not. He does not rise and fall based on what you or I do or what's happening in the world. He is not put out or inflamed in his anger. He is immutable and he is never controlled by his urges. Immutable means unchanging, never will be changed. So when the Bible speaks of our God as a consuming fire, He is a consistent raging fire that will never fade. And he is angry at sin. And his anger is right because sin is against everything that is in God. Sin is a rotting corpse that stinks before his nostrils. It was right. And he's right to be angry because he is perfect and he should not have to deal with sin. But we still can't fathom this. How can you be angry and never lose control? We have never done that. Can we keep our cool? Let's have a little exercise here. What would you have done with Israel's unfaithfulness if you were God. You deliver them from Egypt with their freedom and all the gold and plunder of the Egyptians. You part the Red Sea. You lead them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And you feed them in the wilderness. And what did they do? They worship you and praise you for all you've done because you're the only God who could save them. Or maybe they just build a golden calf and worship it instead. What would you do? We would do what Moses did. We would break the commandments in half out of anger and rage. And God tells Moses, I could destroy all of them in a moment and recreate a new nation with you. We could never be that merciful. We could never be that patient how patient would you be with your own unfaithfulness? Do you ever think about that? Are you as patient with others as you want God to be with you? Yet God, in his anger, is as perfect as he is in his love And in his mercy. In fact, scripture has as much to say about God's wrath and God's anger as his love and his mercy. And this is hard for us to reconcile. How can God be perfectly loving and perfectly angry at sin? How can he be perfectly merciful to those who he he places his mercy on, yet be perfect in his judgment? We don't know but we know it to be true. I'll give you two examples, there are many, many, many more. Um, but I like that they're on the same page in our Bible, probably, the end of Micah and the beginning of Nahum. If you don't make it into the minor prophets often, you should, you'll see lots of references to God's anger. But I love how in the, the end of Micah and the beginning of, of Nahum draw both of these together. We don't understand how this works, but the prophets speak of them completely compatible with one another. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? That's the God we know. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. We love that. But there's a time, praise God, that his anger is not fully exercised on us at all times. He retains it for a time. But to his people, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He hates them so much he puts them under his own feet. He will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. That's how much God hates sin. He wants it as far away as possible, not literally in the depths of the sea, but to them, the bottom of the ocean was as far as you could possibly get. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God, in perfect balance, holds mercy and forgiveness and love and anger and wrath and judgment. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Ouch, that sounds like the Old Testament God. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. But he will by no means clear the guilty. He is slow to anger. But he will not let one sin go unpunished. Praise God that he is slow to anger. Praise God that he is abounding in steadfast love. Because if he wasn't, we'd be just like Israel. We would all be toast. And he'd be right to do so. So, many will claim... Well, that's the God of the Old Testament. They'll even go so far as to take out billboards that say God is not angry. If you've driven on a particular highway, you've seen this billboard, and it has made you angry. Because he is angry. He's angry at sin and your blasphemous billboard. Remember, our God does not change. If he was angry at sin for Israel... And for Cush, and for Midian, for Persia, and on and on and on down the line, you think he just stopped caring about sin today? So here's where we're going to get a little theological, but it's helpful for you to understand. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the simplicity of God. Now, theology students' ears perked up and they got really excited. Um, But I'm not going to give in to your excitement completely. That almost sounds blasphemous in itself. Simplicity... It basically means you cannot reduce or divide God. Remember the, the, the little formulae from the, the, the confessions, without body, parts, or passions? This is the parts portion. You can't take away God's anger to make a God of, of your own making. Then he ceases to be the God of the Bible. You cannot reduce him to one attribute and ignore the rest. You cannot divide his person from his attributes. You cannot make God a la carte to fit your needs. God is irreducible, undivisible, indivisible. He is perfect. He is whole. He is complete. And in his anger, he is perfect. But if you really believe that God is not angry, then sin and do whatever you want, because who cares? If I believed that that billboard, I would keep driving and do whatever I wanted to do. What does it matter? But if God is indeed angry, if God indeed still wants to tread sin under his feet, and bring all the enemies of Christ under his footstool and put our sins at the bottom of the ocean, and he does, then we should pay attention So if God's character has not changed, then what has changed? Why does it seem like God is less angry in the New Testament than he is in the Old? Many ask this question. God has not changed. What has changed is that the message, the good news that was for Israel is now for all the nations. What has changed is that the Messiah has come. What has changed is that the answer for sin has walked on this planet. What has changed is that he took on that anger. He took on that wrath. And the good news that we proclaim is to look to him for the answer to God's anger. But it's still there. I want you to look at Luke chapter 14, where Jesus explains this. This is a parable about the kingdom of God. Similar parable is in Matthew 22. Luke 14, here's how Jesus explains it. He calls it the kingdom of God in in, in Matthew, but look at Luke 14, uh, beginning in verse 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. What's the banquet? This is the invitation to the kingdom of God. This is all of the blessings of the true and living God. And invitations went out. Who did they go out to? All of his friends and relatives. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field, and I must go out and see Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry. Is he right to be angry here? Sure. And said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. Who responded well to The ministry of Jesus, the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, because the rich and self-righteous had too many more important things to do. Still speaking about Israel here. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. Praise God that there's still room in the feast. And the master said, go to the servant, go out of the highways and the hedges and compel the people to come in that my house may be filled. Who's that? Us. God was right in his anger for those who rejected his call. But because the room is not filled, the invitation still goes out. And whether here or in Pakistan or in China, lost sheep are being called home. That my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. His anger still remains on them. He is calling this people, this invitation is called from something to something. Let's look at Colossians 3. For those who will say that God is not angry and that we should only talk about love and they want to divide the attributes of God. Paul brilliantly lays out the gospel and God's design for the Christian life contrasted with his wrath in the final day. Here's the gospel. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. seated at the right hand of God. That's where our focus is to be. So when we think about our anger, fix our eyes on him. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. How often Would you continue in your anger if you were focused on the things of heaven and not the things of earth? If your primary hope and your primary identity was in eternity and not in the here and now, how often would you be given over to your urges? And when Christ who is your life appears, verse four, then you will also appear with him in glory. The focus of the believer is glory. Put to death therefore, therefore points us back. If you're in Christ, you've died with him, you raise again with him, you're gonna be glorified in him Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. Here's those angering urges. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He's still angry at sin. He is long-suffering, but he's not done. In these, you too once walked. When you were living in them, but now put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. I think your stops at verse 8. And then he goes on to say, put on as God's chosen. We saw this in Galatians earlier. We'll see this here now. God is still angry at sin. But when he calls a people, he calls them from sin. To put to death those desires and those urges and to put on the new self. And desire what pleases him. And if you're still not convinced that God is not angry, can't be. I hear so much about the love of God. God is love, absolutely. But we have no further to look than the cross. You think Jesus just stumbled and fell into that as a last resort? What do you think went on in the cross? Don't get your theology from the passion of the Christ. The suffering servant was crushed, pierced, afflicted by who? By the wrath of God for our sin, for our transgression. God takes his anger so seriously that he poured it out on his son for his people. By his propitiation. His price, the wrath of God, is satisfied. And only by his price could it be satisfied. So we cannot be people of the cross and assume that God's anger does not matter. We would not be here without it. We would not have a cross to look to without it. And praise God for that cross. The suffering servant who's the one who went to the cross for us also showed us what it was like to have righteous anger. He saved us in his death and in his resurrection, but he gives us an example in his ministry. He had righteous anger against the self-righteous Pharisees. He had righteous anger against the arrogant Sadducees. He had righteous anger against the money changers who perverted worship. When we were talking the other day, Dylan Brock brought up a good point that he, this wasn't a reactive urge a passionate impulse. This is consistent within God. He hates false worship. He hates those who oppress and distort justice. He is consistently undermined, or not undermined, desired to overthrow those who undermine true worship. And Jesus, as God incarnate, sees the Father's house, a house of prayer. And he flips over the tables and he drives out the money changers not because he was out of control but because he's perfectly in control. Perfectly focused on the glory of God. Cleansing the temple in preparation for the final temple himself. He drove out what was offensive to God and he was right in his anger. So when Paul tells us and Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 26 and 20. Or Ephesians four, excuse me. Oh yeah, I got the wrong one up there. So Ephesians 4: 26 and 27. "Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry. That's a command. and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on, the anger and give, on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. How do we do that? What does righteous anger look like in us? Three questions and a lifelong discipline in trying to figure this out. Question number one. Is your anger for God's name or your own? We must be honest with ourselves. When we are angry, is it because of what someone has done to us my reputation, my name, what will vindicate me? Or am I truly, do I care nothing for myself and only what will glorify God? Because I'm sure you are completely righteous in the person who's breaking the speed limit or who cut you off with no turn signal. I'm sure you are completely righteous in the person who holds you up in the grocery line like I am. I am sure you are perfectly righteous with the church member who doesn't respond the way that you thought, or the person you really like who doesn't answer your text messages. Shall I go on? This is the anger of man, so consumed with ourselves, so focused on what hurts me, that we leave ourselves unguarded. But what about when God's word or God's character is being attacked? the righteous anger of Christ, that your concern is for God's glory. And this is an actual wrong, an injustice, a blasphemy to the name of God, we must ask ourselves two questions. Number one, what will God do? That is the first question we should ask. Because if we trust God, if we trust his righteousness, if we trust his perfect judgment, if we know that vengeance is his, And we can't right every wrong. We can rest. He's a big boy. He is almighty God. He doesn't need you to step in in front of him. So many of us believe in the sovereignty of God and that God is over all things and decrees all things, yet we think we need to take on all of my problems and the problems of the world on ourselves. We say it in theory, but in practice, we don't act like God is actually in control. Am I I far off here? But if he is, we can rest in him because we know that he has the final say even if it was completely out of our control, our God is never out of control. Remember this. Even if you are right in your anger, don't put yourself in the place of God. Do not forget how great and powerful and perfect he is and that a day is coming where he'll put all the things that are wrong right. So in that, we can be bold in truth. We can be unwavering in what is right, but we can be gentle in love in our response. Because God is sovereign. We can be firm, we can be respectful, we can be self-controlled and right in our responses and leave the consequences up to him. I think that's the other thing for us too. We want the results to be the way we want them to. All right, God, I'll step in and let you do this as long as you work it out the way that I want you to. Can you truly rest in God's sovereignty? And so the last question, what will God do? And now what should I do? If we are no longer children of wrath, stop acting like it. We shouldn't act like it. When we let our anger control us, we become ministers of division and not reconciliation. When we seek vengeance, we're putting ourselves in the place of God and we're perpetuating this cycle of angry. So what do I do when I'm angry? Number one, I should step back and pray. Do not act out of anger. Very simple, when in doubt, sit it out. If you remember nothing else, remember that. Calm down, exercise self-control and ask yourself, am I trusting God in this? God, I'm not trusting you in this, help me. Exercise self-control. If you are able to influence a situation, do it. But be content with what you are able to do. And decide I am going to be a servant of righteousness and not a slave to my passions. Humble yourself before the Lord. Examine your heart. Whatever you are angry about, give that to the Lord and do not carry it beyond today. Don't let the sun go down on it. That is not a baggage that you want to carry into the next day. Because as we've seen in Galatians, in Colossians, in Ephesians, if we're in Christ, we have died with him. We have raised, we've been raised a new life with him, and we put the passions of our flesh to death. What do I do when I'm angry? I live in the fruit of the Spirit. These are not the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit, all of them. We are to be known for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your long suffering, that you are slow to anger. Forgive us when we start thinking and acting above our pay grade. May we be content with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, because that is from you. The anger of man is not from you. Vengeance is yours. Your plan is way better than ours. We praise you that our wrath was poured out on Christ if we are indeed in him. If we are not, our wrath, your wrath still remains on us. But forgive us when we inflict wrath on others when wrath has been forgiven us. Lord, sanctify your people. Build up your people according to your word. To the image of Christ, your spirit would sanctify us. And as we prepare to approach the table, may this image of our Savior taking on the wrath of God in our place be ever before us. May we approach this table in right standing and in joyful celebration. i give you a few moments to go before the Lord. Prepare your heart, respond in repentance or in in praise, and maybe both, um, before we get to the table.